So we, we talked a lot last week about the Christian worldview, and if you missed that, uh, I would urge you to listen to it. I think that was an important sermon. I realized that we did a video in the middle of it, and uh, with the video for the, it doesn't come out on the audio on the website. That drives me crazy, and if anybody knows how to get around that technology, I would, uh, I would love to hear it. But anyway... Um, but how, the Christian worldview, how we view reality, right? Defining our beliefs, our values, our uh, behavior, our artifacts, in other words, what we obtain. You know, so it, they answer the questions of what is true, what is real, what is done, what is good and best, and what is uh, right, and, and what, we, what we pursue, what we get, what we, the laws that we put in place, and all those different things. And it begs the question, um, how do we view history and life and people and money and sexuality and all these different things, everything? How do we view everything? Do we view it through that lens of the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview of, of, of the world? Do we take every thought captive to Christ, allowing him to define our reality, our history, past, present, and future? And I, you know, we all would admit that the past few years have been difficult, right? And they continue to be so. Uh, one person I know recently said, I'm an extrovert, I love people, but right now I just want to be alone. And I think we all know what they mean. There is that sense in all of us that this has just been hard, right? Trying to get people back into gathering and relationships and all that stuff has been very difficult. So the question is, do we have a current and future gospel hope in our time of need, right? Does our worldview enable us to see God at work even in the suffering, even in the difficulties of life? Are we holding on to things which we think are going to satisfy us, but not really grasping hold of the, the corner of Jesus' cloak? Do we need to see God at work, not only right now, but in history past and in history future. You may remember the movie The Matrix, a movie about uh, a dystopian world where people are held captive in these, tra- these chambers. They're, they're asleep all the time. They're oblivious to the reality of living in a fallen world, they're a world that is ruled by machines, and the, world, and the machines use them as sort of batteries, as the power source for their technology. And their minds are just continually plugged into the matrix, this computer simulated reality. So they think they're alive, they think they're living, but they're not really. And some escape from that for some reason, and some are set free by others from it. And one group that is led by Morpheus is searching for the one, right? The, the, this one person prophesied to be humanity's savior, setting them free uh, from the rule of the machines and we all know that as, as we watch that, that it's a messianic prophecy. It's a messianic plot, right? And the theme of savior or messianic prophecy deeply appeals to people. There's a reason for that, right? God, you know, made us like that in a sense. Many a story are written with that theme, and they're usually all good stories. But the gospel is from the very beginning, God begins to define our worldview from the start. From the beginning of Scripture, we see the good news, what scholars call the euangelion. 
In Christianity, Genesis 3, verse 15, is known as the proto-evangelium, right? A, a compound of two Greek words, protos meaning first and evangelion meaning good news or gospel. And thus, this verse is commonly referred to as the very first mention in the Bible of the good news of salvation for mankind, the euangelion, we call it. God, in speaking to the serpent, or Satan as we know him, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says this, because you have done this, in other words, because he has twisted creation, he's, he's, he's lied and manipulated Adam and Eve, right? Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring and her offspring, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A uh, Ligonier Ministries, uh, which R.C. Sproul started, article points out that after pursuing Adam and Eve so that they might find repentance, the Lord next turns to the serpent or to Satan, and yet the creator, creator God doesn't he offers Satan no opportunity to confess his guilt. Rather, he immediately judges him, right? He judges the one that attacked him by attacking his image bearers. In other words, we were used as pawns to attack God and to, to usurp his authority over humanity. So first, God curses the serpent above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and uh, it's given to eat dust, which is really a biblical metaphor for humiliation. And the figurative, figurative sort of language is a clue that the curse upon the, the, the serpent isn't simply an explanation of why people fear snakes and stuff. And we shouldn't quickly pass over the presence of a talking serpent in the narrative. Don't get stuck on that. That doesn't happen every day. We understand that. But something more profound is going on in this narrative. And this conflict of, of be, you know, it's, it's beyond a conflict between beast and man, right? Genesis 3.15 reveals man versus serpent as cosmic struggle. Something that's really deeply going on in us. It's God who perpetuates that enmity between the human race and its primal enemy, Satan. The seed of the woman will be bruised by the destructive efforts of the seed of the serpent, that sin that is born in us, but the, the woman's descendants will fight back. Every time a snake bites, we are reminded of the war between God and the one who first tempted us to sin. As a like sin is a poison injected into us, bringing about our spiritual death. Likewise, when we see a serpent, a snake, licking the dust of defeat, we are reminded that this struggle will not last forever. That's the good news. The seed of the woman has bruised the head of his enemy, and he, Jesus, will crush it. Mankind is given the tactical advantage over the serpent. There will be a real war, and we're in the middle of it, and God will be gracious and give his people victory in Christ. That's the good news. So Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel, the, the, proclaim, the you know, proclaims God's people will triumph over the serpent, over sin and death, the seed of the woman, a collective noun, indicates that there's a corporate victory. 
However, we know that if left to ourselves, we cannot win the war. It takes Jesus, Eve's seed par excellence, right? The second Adam to deliver the, the, the crushing blow on all of this. And if we are in him, then we share in and we extend that victory to others. So today we look at one crucial element in the proclamation of the early church, Jesus as humanity's promised Savior or Messiah, the, the gospel preached from the Old Testament by Paul. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 42. It's page 753 of your pew Bibles and follow along as I read. But as you turn there, I'm going to preface that the early church proclaimed Jesus as the promised Messiah from the very beginning who fulfills our deepest yearnings, our deepest hopes for life. But by Acts 13, we see there's a shift from Peter to Paul. So Paul's our main character mostly. And Paul and company have arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they attend a synagogue. And after the reading of the scripture, the leader of the synagogue invites Paul to stand up and address the congregation, which he does. And he steeps his message in the scriptures uh, that the Jewish and Gentile converts would know and understand. The Old Testament, the Hebrew writings. And he, 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 he goes over four important events in Jewish history, ending in this great declaration of messianic hope in verse 23. And he points out that Jesus is the one about whom John the Baptist had testified. Now, John the Baptist was very well known, even in Acts 19, when Paul encounters people in Ephesus, there were followers there who, would, who were followers of John the Baptist. So Paul uses John the Baptist as his launching point or his launching pad from Old Testament Scripture to the promised Messiah who is Jesus. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me as as I read. But starting in verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt and With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. (laughs) He endured their conduct, right? And he overthrew uh, seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to these people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached a repentance and a baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, why do you, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one that you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I got a hair in my mouth. <laughs> Sorry. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. So there were converts to Judaism at that time. 
It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. In other words, you're finding the Messiah and all of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, right? Verse 28, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the psalm, the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God had said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David, so it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. A little drink. That was a long one. But commentating, commenting, commenting, commentating, commenting, I don't know, on this passage, uh, William Larkin Jr. writes, the human spirit can come under bondage because of external political or economic oppression and also because of self-imposed religious legalism. And uh, first century Jews needed relief from both, he says. Paul came preaching a dying and rising Messiah who would free people from inner bondage so that they could cope with external oppression and his, his message of hope should resonate with all those who long to be able to say, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I am free at last. I agree. Because that's what the Jews were expecting uh, and that's what they were experiencing under Roman rule as they yearned for the Messiah who would set them free, both physically from military oppression, but spiritually as a Jewish kingdom um, would be reestablished, so to speak. In Acts 1.6, they even gather around Jesus and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And that was their hope. They were really looking to be you know, brought together as a, as a kingdom, like a physical kingdom. And Paul clarifies the freedom that Jesus brings is different and much more powerful than what they were expecting. Declaring that they themselves were the messengers of God's salvation in verse 26. And that all the prophets they read every Sabbath point to Jesus in verse 27. That death could not stop Jesus. So Paul proclaims through this man 
Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Then in verse 39, Paul drives home the power of this liberation in saying, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That would be good news to me if I were standing there that day. A salvation where we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, not by what we do at all. Radical and liberating. You have to understand how radical it was to say these things. The division between clean and unclean, which guided the life of observant Jews, was never enough to make them acceptable to God. They still had to perform day in and day out the sacrifices of cleansing and sin offerings and purification rites and all these things. But as Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it sort of almost feels like a futile existence. But these practices were always meant they were, they were meant to be practices of faith in the coming Messiah, foreshadowed by the sacrifices, the worship practices, and, de- and declared from the very beginning in that euangelion. Jesus lived the perfect life for us, taking on the curse of God upon himself as he was crucified. And what was their reaction to that good news? The people begged for them to return. The the language is actually stronger than my translation has. The people begged for them to return the next Sabbath and speak about it more. And the Greek word for begged is parakaleo, and it, it is from two words, to be near and to cry out. So the image is of these people running up to Paul after his sermon, crying out for him to continue to speak about this gift of salvation which God has given us. Like that messianic theme in a good movie, they wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear the end of the story. They needed a savior. Begging, as the classic Christmas carol says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in deed and night. That's why they were begging. They were seeing that. The God who had shepherded his people for thousands of years had made good on his euangelion promise to deliver them in a new and unexpected way. God had kept his promise. That's important. They can now be truly free, and they beg Paul for more of this. So good news. First given in Genesis 3.15 and reiterated all throughout Scripture. Listen as I read a few of them. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we all know that Emmanuel means God with us. Right? Matthew 1.28 restates that verse, applying it to Jesus at his birth, that God is with us. 2 Samuel 7, 6 says, And you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
And this promise given to David that his line would continue on eternally, fulfilled in the New Testament through the lineage of Mary and Joseph, Christ's throne will be established forever because he lives on eternally in resurrection rule, dying, raised to life, establishing his kingdom forever. Countless verses also speak of the Messiah's lineage in David including Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. It says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28, promises an everlasting kingdom. It says, My servant David shall be king over them, And they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people and then the nations will know that I am the Lord I am the one true God in other words I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore Psalm 132 11 says the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne And all the eternal promises given to David are extended to us in Christ as he is established as king in that coronation ceremony as he entered Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. Psalm 22 lays out the resurrection of the coming Messiah. The opening line actually says in that psalm, it reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those are the very words that were uttered by Jesus right before his death. He was referring back to that psalm in the final moments of his life, applying that prophecy to himself. Read through the entire psalm and you'll be amazed at the prophecy of it and the accuracy in it. Verses 16 and 18 through 18 say, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that is exactly what happened to Christ at his crucifixion. We know that. Throughout Scripture, God promises salvation in the gospel from beginning to end, despite humanity's rebellion, despite our rebellion. God reveals how and where the Messiah would be born and what he had come to do, uh, that he would die, how he would die, how he would rise from the dead, and his kingdom would be established forever. And most of all these these, uh, prophecies were written 700 years before he showed up on the scene. It's been said that over 300 direct prophecies concerning Christ's first coming, his virgin birth, and his second coming at the end of time are revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Most concerning his being born as a man, his dying as a suffering servant, and rising from the grave in eternal rule forever. 
in the Christian worldview, which has become very important to think about for us, we see God's promises and communication of salvation from the beginning and extending throughout history. The the early church proclaimed Jesus clearly as the Messiah, the answer to all of these prophecies who fulfills the deepest yearnings and hopes for life. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. People remained plugged into the matrix, don't they? They really do. A simulated reality, a false reality. Held captive oblivious to the reality of living in a fallen world, ruled by destructive sin and needing the hope of the gospel that we have. And more tragically, maybe more tragically, due to the enculturation of living in this culture, of absorbing it, we also, although that we say that we believe and follow Jesus, we still plug ourselves back into the matrix as well. Not taking every thought captive to the gospel of Christ. Instead, allowing the world to define our reality, who we are, and robbing us of hope and bringing us despair. So, what oppresses you today? What weighs on your heart? What are you hoping for that Jesus has already provided yearning for that Jesus can actually satisfy right now, or that having a proper eternal perspective from past, present, into the future can satisfy for us or or alleviate the power of all these pressures now. Have you discovered that he comforts all of our fears and gives us hope for the future? Good questions, right? The invitation always stands because God is faithful in his promises. God is faithful in his promises. He does not judge on how we believe, how well we believe. But his desire is for us to grow in that and have more freedom in that. The invitation is come to him. Choose to believe the gospel revealed in prophecy, foreshadowed in scripture, and confirmed by eyewitness. As Mark 1.15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the repentance part. Because as Mark 8.35 also says, for who would ever Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And when salvation does occur to us, when we come to Christ and we realize this, that we've been saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus, we are called then to bring it to others. Mark 16, 15 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Preach it wherever you go at all times. Be intentional to do that. Mark 3, 13, 10, and the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations, all people groups, all ethnic groups. 
Mark 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It is not yet. There are whole ethnic groups out there that have not heard the gospel. And that was Paul's proclamation in Pisidian Antioch, still relevant to all peoples today. All the hopes and fears of all the years answered in Christ. Humanity's true reality, even if they don't see it, even if they remain plugged into the matrix. Past, present, future hope in Christ for all peoples. God kept that euangelion promise to us, to all of humanity. And as Paul said, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, their descendants, by raising up Jesus. So I simply say, be unplugged from the matrix. Dive in to to what God is telling you. The reality of the Christian worldview from beginning to end, that this history has a destination. We're not hopeless, we're not nihilist, we're not just gonna die and go away. There are reasons that things are happening. And that's what we wanna approach life like in the Christian worldview, walking with Jesus through this. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that You can make clear these things much better than I can. I thank you that you have gone to great pains to communicate yourself to this world. It breaks my heart that not only do I not see these things sometimes, not only do I not walk in those things sometimes as well as I should, but that so many people out there are just blindly going through life, not realizing that God loves them in Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make clear to our community and the world and to our family and friends and all the people around us and even maybe more clearly to us how great and powerful and all-encompassing this story is. That we are not disconnected. That you have set all this in motion. And there is truth about it all. We pray, Father God, that you would adjust our, our, our sights, adjust our thinking, adjust our vision so that we can see you in everything around us, the purpose of you in everything around us. Give us clarity, Lord Jesus. Let us live in purpose. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.